the weight of his presence. When someone is glorious, there's a, there's a weight to them, an importance given to them. And it sounds kind of odd at first, like, what's someone's weight? How does that have to do with their glory? But in reality, we give weight to people all the time. So for instance, Matthew mentioned, uh, we've all been watching the Olympics. So imagine right now, if, if you've been watching swimming or gymnastics, imagine right now that Michael Phelps or Simone Biles walked into this room. You would immediately feel their presence, wouldn't you? We'd, we'd probably pause. Did you see who's here? Are they there? Is that really them? And we'd go talk to them. We might get their autograph. We would feel their presence as they came into the room. Or imagine a, a public figure like Billy Graham or the president comes in with his secret servicemen. There are people that when they would come into the room, you would immediately feel the weight of their presence. There's a, a glory, if you will, that accompanies who they are when they would walk into the room. Someone's glory is the weight of their presence. The more important the person, the greater weight of their glory. Now, here's where this weight of God's glory intersects our lives. You see, all of us are worshipers, which means every single day, every single one of us, we are ascribing glory to things. We are giving weight to things. We're worshiping things. We're worshipers. We're made to worship, and worship is ascribing glory. It's giving weight to different things in our lives. So every single day, we make choices that reflect what's going to receive the greatest weight of glory in our lives, what's most important to us, and what we give weight to reveals what we think is actually most glorious. So if you're a Christian this morning, you know that you ought to worship God above all things. In fact, I think you, you probably want to worship God above all things because you know that He's more glorious than anything else in the world. You know that God ought to be the center. You know that the weight of His presence is, 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 is bigger than anyone or anything in this world, that everything is from Him and through Him and to Him. We know this. Yet often uh, we live lives that place us at the center. We give weight to other things. We give weight to our preferences and our desires and, and, and our hopes and ambitions and our happiness. And so rather than everything being from him and through him and to him, oftentimes things are from us, through us, and to us. God's no longer the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the bookend of our lives. In some ways, our lives, our thoughts, our concerns become the beginning and the end of our existence. And so we begin to live for our glory. And when we do that, when we exchange God's glory for our glory or something in creation, it, it, it impacts everything in our lives. It distorts our identity as disciples. And all, all identity is just answering the, the fundamental question, who are we? Why are we here? What are we all about? What is life all about? And when God is at the center, we realize it's all about Him, that the chief end of our lives is to glorify and enjoy Him. However, when we're at the center, our identity becomes distorted because rather than it being about Him, it becomes about us. So think about how that would change our worship. It's awfully hard to worship God when He's not the weightiest thing in our lives. Suddenly there's a competing glory. Think how it would change how we treat each other in our community life as believers. It's awfully hard to lay down our lives, to love other people, to place their preferences above our own when it's our glory that's at the center of our lives. It distorts 
how we treat one another. Think about your life on mission to the world and evangelism. Friends, what we, what we love, what we give weight to, what's ultimately most glorious, that's the thing that we will proclaim and display to the world. And so when we're at the center, ask yourself, well, what would the world then see when they look at our lives? What's going to receive glory? What, what are we going to be proclaiming and displaying to the world around us? If it's God's glory, then that's what we will proclaim. If it's our glory or something else, that's what we will proclaim. And thankfully, even though there's a war that goes on in our own hearts for what's most glorious, the, the power of the gospel is greater than the power of sin in our hearts. In Christ, our love of self is flipped completely upside down. Friends, that's what the gospel does. It takes glory of self and it says it's not about us. It's actually about God and his glory. And the transforming work of the spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ turns our lives upside down so that it's no longer about us and our glory. It's about God and his glory. And so this is our main point this morning. We exist to glorify God not ourselves. We exist to glorify God, not ourselves, because it's not about us. It's about God and his glory. Let's read from Romans 11 together, beginning in verse 33. This is Paul speaking here. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that through the proclamation of your word and by the power of your spirit that you might become more glorious to us. Father, we lived our week this week and we came in this morning with competing glories. And we need you to reorient our hearts this morning to give us a glimpse of you and of your glory so that we might see afresh maybe in deeper ways, even than we've known before, that you are more glorious than anything else, that you be, might be more weighty in our hearts and in our lives than anything else. Let us see you more clearly this morning so that we might worship you and give you the glory that you deserve. And may your glory make everything else in this world pale in comparison, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, he goes about making his argument for the centrality of God's glory uh, by doing three things. Verse 33, he declares the unfathomable depths of God's glory. Verses 34 and 35, he asks questions that lead us to compare our glory to God's glory. And finally, in verse 36, he puts forth the all-encompassing nature of God's glory. So point number one the unfathomable depths of God's glory. So Paul, at the end of chapter 11, he's, he's wrapping up what is arguably the most comprehensive exposition of the gospel, the single exposition of the gospel in the scriptures. Eleven chapters he's been unfolding 
this glorious gospel for us. And as glorious as this exposition is, you get the sense that as Paul comes to the end of this exposition, that he's just kind of throwing up, all right, it's been great. I've shown you how glorious it is. Let me just wrap up with this doxology because I haven't been able to encompass it all. So let me throw up this prayer of glory that if you've missed his glory and all of this gospel, you're going to catch it now. It's just an exclamation, oh, the depths of the mercy and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He, he cries out at the end of this glorious exposition about the glory of God. And he begins with that exclamation, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. And each of these three things, these riches, wisdom, and knowledge, they point to different aspects of God's saving work in Christ that he's been talking about for 11 chapters. The riches of God here, they refer to the riches of God's mercy revealed to us in Christ. Riches of His mercy. The wisdom of God speaks of the wisdom of God expressed in His plan of salvation for humanity. How did He weave this whole plan of salvation together? And there was great wisdom in how He put this salvation together. And then the knowledge of God points to God's specific knowing of us expressed in His election of us unto salvation. When, when the scriptures talk about God knowing us, it's not like he knows something like he knows a math fact. It's a, 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 a loving and affectionate knowledge. So this is the depth of his knowledge is his electing knowledge of us, that he loved us, set his affection upon us, and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to save us in Christ. So we have this, the, the, the riches of his mercy and of his, uh, excuse me, of his, excuse me, of the riches of his mercy and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, now, the word depth doesn't quite do justice to what Paul's after here. When we think deep, we think like deep water. You stepped off you know, into the water and suddenly it got deeper than you thought. Or 1960s, oh, that's deep, man. That's so awesome. That's not, it's not deep. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul talks about depth here, he's something that, talking about something that is too immense to measure, too deep to fathom. You know, the concept of measuring water by the fathoms, too deep to fathom, an ocean that is bottomless, beyond our ability to grasp. That's the kind of depth that Paul's talking about. Uh, recently, Joe Lechner, one of the pastors at Crossway and his family, they went on a, they went on a cruise to the Caribbean, and uh, he was telling me about all these screens that they have on the ship. And these screens will constantly be updating you. Uh, how far have you traveled? Where are you currently? Your GPS location. They'll also give you the depth of the water underneath the boat at any given moment. And he said the, the, the deepest reading that he saw uh, when he was on the boat was 21,000 feet deep, which is almost four miles deep. And he said the thought of that kind of wigged them out a little bit. It's a little strange, like four miles of water below me. All I see around me is water. And he, he said it just kind of creeped him out just how alone he was and how much water was below him. And that got me thinking about the, just the fathomless nature of the ocean. Now, many of us have traveled to different places in our country, and we're amazed by the stuff that we can see on land. So you go out west, and you will see the Grand Canyon, and it's massive, Canyonlands National Park. Uh, you, you, you see the Rocky Mountains, their immensity, you know, over 14,000 feet high. Uh, you, you go to the Red Rock out west, and, and you're not amazed by how high it is or how deep it is. You're amazed just by how big it is, how open it is. And the thing is, is that these, these landmarks on land that we've seen, they pale in comparison to what's going on underneath our oceans, the landmarks and the things, the, the, the mountain ranges and, and the canyons under the ocean. 
ocean covers 70% of the earth, and below the surface are canyons and mountain ranges that dwarf anything that we've ever seen. The longest range under the ocean, 46,000 miles long, like a seams of a baseball. It just kind of goes around the entire earth. That's the mountain range. 46,000 miles long. The deepest canyon is the Mariana Trench. It's 36,000 feet deep. 6.8 miles. To give you some reference, if you put Mount Everest at the bottom of this trench and you and I stood on the top of it, we would still have one mile of water above our head. Just to give you some reference of the immensity of these, of these underwater canyons and mountains. Now, we sent men to the bottom of this trench. They took the little thing and they, the submarine thing, and they go all the way down. And they're, they're, it's pitch black, 6.8 miles. I think two, four, two miles down, there's no light. So they're 6.8 miles down, completely dark, uh, and, and it was pitch black, and they could only see little tiny pieces of it. So they were down there. They were supposed to be down there like six hours. You can tell I spent a little too much time thinking about this illustration. Six hours down there. They're only down there for like two hours, and, and immediately when they came up, they were amazed at what they had seen. But what, what amazed them was, look, we went to the deepest place but there are literally tens of thousands of square miles of ocean that we have never seen. As, as amazing as our technology is, we got one glimpse of the very deepest place in the ocean, and what immediately made them aware of was how much more there was to explore that they had never seen. They got a little taste of it, and they realized, we've only seen a speck. We have no idea what's out there. They're discovering fish and crustaceans and all kinds of things they, they did not even know existed, and there are tens of thousands of square miles that yet to be explored. They had no idea. Paul speaks of the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, and when he does so, he is speaking about a depth that is beyond our ability to grasp or measure. It's like these guys exploring the bottom of the ocean. They get a taste of it. And to see just a, a piece of it, when we see the, the riches of God's mercy, we get a taste of it just a little bit, and it immediately makes us aware of how amazing it is, yet how much more there is that we can't even begin to fathom. Mercies unending as vast as the ocean, a knowledge that is unfathomable, wisdom that we cannot wrap our arms around. It is beyond us, friends. To see just a touch of it, even something deep within it, we realize in that moment the immensity of God goes far, far, far beyond our ability to grasp. Like men just scratching the bottom of the ocean when there are tens of thousands of square miles left to explore. That's what it's like to encounter the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge and mercy. And then Paul goes on to describe God's judgments these are only the first three words, friends. As unsearchable in his ways as inscrutable. And God's judgments are in ways, they're, uh, they're, they're in parallel here. They're, together they're describing God's sovereign ordering of all of redemptive history. And this ordering of redemptive history is described as unsearchable and inscrutable. Unsearchable is, is very similar to unfathomable. And inscrutable means beyond our ability to understand or interpret. And when we put the whole verse together, we begin to catch a small glimpse of the perfection and the beauty and the immensity of God's redeeming work in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God knew us and chose us. He then created all things, and he began to unfold this whole story of redemption from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Christ. And throughout all of human history, every single human life, he 
he has been ordering to bring about his purposes for his glory, winding its way all the way to this day where we have 7.1 billion people on the face of the earth and God is at work in every single one of their lives and throughout human history to bring about his purposes for his glory. Think about that. Friends, we try to manage our one life and we feel overwhelmed. Do you understand the immensity of what God is doing in redemptive history? Winding it all of it together so that he might be glorified in Christ Jesus. And then you begin to, begin to understand when Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Friends, can you feel the weight of God's glory when you begin to see just a glimpse of all that he's done in Christ Jesus? At the end of a verse like this, we can, we can give a hearty amen to that, can't we? Amen. Paul, you are right. I agree with you. God is glorious. Yet it's quite possible for us to affirm that. And yet tomorrow, there's a competing glory in our lives. And so Paul goes on to ask these three questions. So it's not enough just to say, here's how glorious he is. He wants us to go on and ask three questions because he wants us to compare God's glory to ours just to make sure we get the message. So point number two is this three questions. Let's read together verses 34 and 35. Three questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Question one. Or who has been his counselor? Question two, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? If the weight of God's glory is not enough from the first verse, Paul's now going to compare. And so what he's going to do is he's going to basically put us in the scales. Let's take God's glory, his weight, and let's take yours and let's, let's compare them for a minute and see who's actually more glorious. How many of uh, you guys or gals here have ever done a little armchair quarterbacking? You guys know what armchair quarterbacking is? Some of you? Yeah, a few. Okay. Uh, my wife's actually the one in our house that does the armchair quarterbacking because I take a nap. But anyway, so armchair quarterbacking. This is what it might sound like. It's a guy, probably sometimes a girl, but a guy, maybe a little overweight, sitting in the comfort of his chair, yelling at a screen of some of the best elite athletes in the world saying, how can you not possibly see that man open 20 yards down the field? How much do we pay this guy? You ever thought that? How could he drop that pass? There's nobody around him. This is ridiculous. Armchair quarterback. Now imagine for a moment the Panthers or the Redskins. I, don't, I think you guys are Redskins fans. Or we're Panther fans in, in Carolina. Imagine one of these teams, they show up on Monday and they say, we heard you yelling at the screen. And uh, we thought since you think it's clearly so easy that this next Sunday you're going to get to suit up and play. And so, suit up, bro. It's time. You ready? Step on the field. And I think, I could be wrong, but I imagine that in an instant we would realize the error of our ways. Snap of the ball, we're the quarterback. 1 1,000, 2 1,000, 3. The ball better be gone because there's a 300 pound lineman who's getting ready to crush your rib cage. It's a little harder to see those five options you got on the field to throw the ball. 1 1,000, 2 1,000, done. Dust, pile of dust. 
40th time sprinting down the field, 65,000 fans yelling at you. You're tired. The ball is traveling 50 miles an hour. You're at a full out sprint. I guarantee you we probably wouldn't catch it. It's a whole lot harder than it looks. It's easy sitting in the chair to scream at the screen, but it's hard when it's time for us to suit up and actually play in the game. It's one thing to imagine we're capable. It's another thing to actually be capable. And what Paul is effectively saying to us in these three questions is, do you really think you can do what God does? Do you really think that? And then he says, I'm going to ask you three questions. It's time to suit up. I'm going to put you in the game, and we're going to see, can you actually measure up to the glory of God? It's game time. And each one of these three questions, they connect back to one of those three attributes that I mentioned in the first half of 33. The first question, for who has known the mind of the Lord? And it connects back to the unfathomable knowledge of God revealed in his electing purposes. So God in his word is putting this question to us. So tell me, were you there before the foundation of the world when I knew all of my elect people and set my affection upon them? Were you a part of the, the agreement between myself and the Son to choose them in Him? Were you there? Do you, do you know the mind of the Lord? Where, where, let's compare where we are. Second question, who has been His counselor? This question ties back to the wisdom of God revealed in his saving purpose. And again, God asks questions of, did I, did I seek your counsel when I covenanted with my son? Did you help me draw up the intricacies and the beauty of my covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Christ? Can you weave all of those things together? Can you superintend all of human history to bring about your purposes? God's asking hard questions of us. Last question, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And this points back to the riches of God's mercy. And with this question, God asks, do you, do you and I have equal standing? You give to me, I give to you. God's, have I ever been your debtor? Have I ever been in need of your mercy? These are hard questions. And suddenly, friends, with three really simple questions, any illusion that we have of our own glory, gone. Gone. And we, we stand with Job after Job's questioning, and we say this, Behold, I am of little account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Friends, to be compared with God's glory for even an instant is to immediately become aware of our relative glory and how little glory we actually have compared to Him. We may be silent before these questions, having no answer to give, but Paul is not silent, and he goes on to answer who is worthy of glory. Point number three, one answer, verse 36. When confronted with the question, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, we are left with one response and one answer, God alone. He alone can do the things that he does. And friends, it's not just that God has done these things in Christ. It's not as though there's someone else that exists in creation 
that could do it, but only Christ has done it thus far. Friends, there's no one or no thing in creation that can do what God alone has done. He alone is creator, and all the rest of us are part of his creation. It's not just that he's done it, it's that he alone can do these things. And so Paul summarizes this all-encompassing glory of God with these words, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Friends, it's not about us. Not about us. It is about God and his glory because we exist to glorify him, not ourselves. And so the question is this, whose glory are you going to live for? Whose glory are you going to live for? For some here this morning, living for your own glory might take the the form of a, a, a lack of awe before God. A couple weeks ago, my wife, Rebecca, and I were watching a DVD by Paul Tripp on parenting, and and Tripp was teaching on how we are to daily, moment by moment, point our kids to the glory of God, to see the glory of God everywhere. It's it's great material if you've never listened to it. And his argument was that if we regularly point our kids to the glory of God— and they become in awe of him, when we then point to the word of God, they will listen to it. Because that glorious God, whom we've been pointing to all over the place, has spoken to us, and therefore we should listen to him. It was an awesome point. But immediately I became aware of the fact that I don't talk to my kids like that. That's not what's regularly coming out of my mouth. And then Tripp made this statement, and, and, and he cut right to the heart of it. He said this, The reason we don't often lead our children to be in awe of God is because we aren't in awe of God, and we cannot give to them what we do not have ourselves. So I started off with, I should probably do that more. And then I realized the reason, friends, that it's not often on my lips is because it's not often in my heart. I don't often live in awe of God. Therefore, when I speak about the world, the awe of God that should be coming out of my mouth as an overflow of my heart isn't coming out because it's not there. I'm not often in awe of God. And here's the thing. We too easily dismiss our lack of awe as though it were an inconsequential thing. But friends, to not live in awe of God is sin because it's actually robbing God of his glory. To not live in awe of God means that we are lowering him and making him commonplace as though he is among us rather than above us. We've made him commonplace. Ask yourself, when's the last time that your heart cried with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God? You are amazing. How often is that in your heart? How often is it in our hearts? If our affections are dull, if God is is commonplace to us, if we have a pattern of interacting with him in casual ways as though he is just one of us, friends, we're robbing God of his glory and we must repent of that, acknowledge that, and turn from that. For others of us, we are living for our own glory by living overly busy and distracted lives, lives that leave very little room for God and His glory and His people and His mission. You know what it sounds like? 
Life's full. Everyone's busy. I got bills and kids and kids' school and extracurricular activities and work and hobbies. And who has time for all of the things of God? Who has time for all this? And so God begins to fit into our agenda as though it's a calendar item. I'm really busy then. I can fit him here, so slide it to then. And I didn't get to it tonight, so throw it to the morning, but I overslept because I stayed up too late watching the Olympics, so let's scooch him to lunch, but then I had a meeting. And we just move him around like, he, like he's an agenda item for us. And then we, we say these words, I'm busy, as though that's the blanket statement that justifies it all. We, I, I do this... We all do this, friends. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9 to two folks who want to follow him. He asks them some questions, and he points to this I got things to do issue in our hearts. He says, to another, Jesus said this to him. He said, follow me to this person. But the person said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to another, he said, I, this person said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so the question is, friends, when, when Jesus calls on you, what do you say to him? Hang on, Jesus. I'll be right back. First, let me take care of my kid's education. Super important. Got to get him into college. Got to get him married. Got to get him in the house. Got to be successful. If it's not our kids, then it's, hang on just a second. I've got work. I've got stuff to do around my house. I've got hobbies. I've got chores. I've got media intake. You name it, we fill our lives with it. And when Jesus calls, hang on a second. Parents, you've heard this from your kids. Drives you absolutely up the wall. Hang on a second. Just a minute. I'm on my way. Almost there. But friends, we do it to Jesus all the time. He calls on us to follow him, to, you, to, to draw near to him, to relate to him. And so often, friends, Jesus, just a sec, just a sec. I'll be there in a minute. Hang on. I'm busy. There's tons going on. But friend, God, friends, God, he isn't an agenda item in our lives. God is the agenda, period. That's it. There's one agenda, and it's him. He's not an item and our agenda. Our overly busy, distracted lives, friends, we have to see this. It's not an administrative problem. It's a worship problem because we're choosing to love other things more than God by crowding him out in order to do those things. Last way... You might be living for your own glory is by exalting yourself before God. Some of us aren't living in awe of God, so we lower Him. Some of us move Him to the periphery because we have loads going on. Some of us, though, are actually competing with God for His glory. We're exalting ourselves. This may take the form of pride. We heard the passage from Daniel, Belteshazzar arrogant. Look at what I've done, and God humbles him. Uh, it's a picture of us when we are living for our own glory by exalting ourselves before God. It might take the form of um, 
taking great pride in your accomplishments, your righteousness, your God-given abilities, and that's reflected in the thoughts you have of yourself and the thoughts and words you want others to have of you. There's a competing glory. You're not as excited about them exalting God as you are about them exalting you in some way. This self-exaltation might also take the form of unrepentant sin. Friends, when we're not in awe of God and in fear of God and when we don't have His glory at the forefront of our minds, it becomes easy for us to begin to say that I will live life on my own terms and sin is okay because it's okay with me. We begin to exalt ourselves to say it's okay for me to live as I want to live because God doesn't ultimately define for me his glory and what's right and holy and just. This self-exaltation might take the form of charging God with wrongdoing. Have you had any trials in your life, suffering, pain, difficulty? And in that moment, um, the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge to superintend all things, uh, you, you begin to question that. If I were in charge, I would do it this way. I'm not sure God has really got this one. And the trials and the circumstances of your life cause you to question Him. So I ask again, friends, whose glory are you living for? Who are we living for? Now, as hard as it is for us to acknowledge that we often live for our own glory, here's the good news, and hear this good news, friends that the riches of God's mercy that lead us to live for God's glory, they're the same riches of mercy in Christ that restore us when we don't. Do you remember the immensity of His mercies? Immense, as deep as the ocean, massive. This is the glory of God. Think about this. His salvation is so glorious that even when we do not acknowledge His glory, the salvation that He offers is still big enough to save us. The thing that should lead us to worship Him, so often we don't see it and we fall short of it, yet in that salvation, there is so much mercy that He forgives us and restores us and draws us yet again to see more of His glory so that we might follow Him. Ephesians 2 says it this way, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Holy smokes, people, think about this. Immeasurable riches. Tomorrow, we will have a war in our souls about who is most glorious. And in that moment, Jesus will show up and he will say, even when you sin, I already paid for that sin. And in my mercy, you will see my glory anew. So that in eternity future, what you're going to be talking about is recounting my immeasurable mercies in your life. 
Every time you fell short, every time you did not acknowledge my glory, my glory and salvation was sufficient to save you anyway because I am more glorious than anyone in all the earth. Think about that. Friends, we rob him of glory and yet he extends immeasurable mercy over and over and over again so that we might see his mercy anew. Unbelievable mercy and salvation in Christ. It's unbelievable. And then it's really easy with Paul. Oh, the depths. Oh, the depths of his mercy. And friends, it starts simply with this, humbling ourselves, repenting, and giving God the glory due his name. But friends, as hard as that is, it is the most freeing thing in the world because that's what we were made for. We weren't designed to receive glory. He was, and he designed us to give it to him. And so we're enslaved to glorifying ourselves. Jesus wants to free you from that, free me from that. And all he says is, acknowledge it, repent, receive my mercy, and turn afresh to me. Friends, we exist to glorify God, not ourselves, because it's not about us. It's about God and his glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you know our frame, that you know that we are dust, that, Father, we are a vapor. We are wisps of smoke, and so often we are fickle and do not love you as we ought and acknowledge you for the glorious God that you are. And yet, in those moments, you reveal your glory anew by drawing near to us with unending mercy, revealing your glory to us. And so, Father, we simply receive it as a free gift of your grace that you have forgiven us, restored us, and are now calling us to see your glory afresh and worship you. And so, Father, may we do that as your people this morning, freshly aware of your glory in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and by his spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.